Today we're going to be in John chapter 5, starting with verse 24. And the last time we covered the first half of the Bethesda miracle, uh, the Bethesda healing. And I do have an article in my office that I read, if you weren't here last Sunday, proving the existence of the town of Bethesda when the naysayers for more than a thousand years said no. They didn't believe the Johannine account, the gospel, until it was excavated not that long ago. So that's really a, a neat thing. And today we're going to cover the second half, which is really the five witnesses to Christ's divinity. The first half, I have to say, was very encouraging, was very uplifting. If you didn't get it, check it out on the website. Today it's going to be a little bit more convicting. We're going to talk a little bit about judgment, a little bit about some harder things in the scripture. We'll check that out. Just a little recap, Jesus heals this disabled man. And the fact that Jesus says, stand up, he wanted to make sure the man... Um, he wanted to challenge the man's faith to believe that he could be healed. Stand up, take up your bat, mat, and walk. And that's what the man did. That put him at odds with the religious system at the time because of their tradition. Uh, and also put Jesus at odds with the religious system. Uh, Jesus here transitions to a teaching of these four points of divinity, which we covered, and I'll just recap. And also his divinity expressed in those four points as well as those five witnesses that we're going to cover today. So starting with verse 24, and this is very powerful, John chapter 5. Most assuredly, this is Jesus speaking, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming, in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can do nothing of myself. Of myself, I can do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So these points of deity that we covered last time, number one, the fact that uh, the personhood of Jesus is equal to the personhood of the Father. They're equal. Uh, two, the fact that they are equal in power. And three, the fact that they're equal in authority. And we covered those. And the fourth point here is now that we understand Christ's divinity, it's easier to see why salvation is through the Son. Okay? Again, many have tried to crucify themselves, oddly enough, over the last 2,000 years, and it accomplishes nothing. It's a foolish expedition. Only because he is divine is the fact that he could die for anybody's sins. We can't die for our own sins. It's, it's a futile exercise. So in these verses, what do we see a lot of? We see resurrection and we see judgment. Now, I'm going to give you a basic overview of two lives, two births, two deaths, two resurrections, and two judgments. And that's going to help us understand what we're looking at today. So let's start with the two births. We're all born physically. The fact that you're all here today sitting in the pews means that you had a physical birth. But the Bible says to see heaven, you must be born again, indicating that we can have something to do with receiving that free gift of salvation. So we must be born again, not of a physical sense, but of the spirit. 
The Bible also tells us there's two deaths, and we're going to cover that. The first death, which we all will have, unless the Lord comes for us sooner and just brings us to heaven, the first death is a physical death. It's a cessation of permanent bodily functions necessary for life. So we die physically. Our physical body dies. Now, if we're born again, we don't have a second death. Because the second death, the scripture tells us, is that, that damnation of those who have rebelled against God. It's the death of the spirit, although it's eternal suffering. Okay? Hard to swallow, but it is, no one has to go there. That's a fact. So the, the third thing that we look at is two judgments. The first judgment is when a believer stands before the Lord at the Bema seat, which is um, in the Greek, it was, uh, they had the Isthmian Games and the judges, sort of like the Olympics would be on raised platforms and the contestants would come up and they would make sure that they followed the rules of the games, that they, um, you know, that they won and it was, you know, you could see that this one crossed the finish line first and they would give them these different, like we get the, the gold, the silver, the bronze, like in the Olympics. So every believer will go before the Bema seat not to be judged for damnation, but to be judged in a positive way like the Olympics. Olympics, what have we done with our lives? What have we done with our Christian walks? Some believers will barely escape the fire and get to heaven because they really were lazy spiritually. The second judgment is a judgment that a believer does not partake of. And I'm going to read that in Revelation 20. That's the great white throne judgment. Sounds really nice and pretty, but the fact is you don't want to be there because that judgment is for the rebellious and their punishment, those who have rejected God's way of salvation. Okay, so you have this two judgments. Now, there's also two resurrections. The first resurrection is the resurrection to life. We know that Jesus, the Bible says, was the first fruits of the resurrection. So he rose from the dead. Matthew, Matthew's gospel tells us that there were souls, that they come out of their graves and they, they appeared to many in Jerusalem. Okay, they were part of, after Jesus was resurrected. Then there's also another part of that first resurrection which has to do with the harpazo or the rapture, where believers at some point in our near future will be resurrected bodily to come to be with heaven, to come to be in heaven. And the Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians that the dead in Christ will rise first. There's an order to it. Another part of that resurrection is the tribulation saints in, in a way near future after that harpazo or rapture. That's the still part of that first re resurrection. Okay? The second resurrection, again, is a place that none of us want to be at. The second resurrection is when the, the rebellious, the wicked, those who have rejected God, uh, are resurrected bodily and judged at the great white throne judgment, and then cast into the lake of fire. And I'm going to read that. I'm going to read that. In Revelation 20, starting with verse 15. I'm sorry, starting with verse 11. This is John, the apostle, says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, death and Hades, Hades was a, prior to Jesus, it was like a holding tank. And one section was Abraham's bosom, the righteous. 
uh, in the Old Testament would fill up this place. They were in a good place, and then there was a chasm or a gulf, and they could see those who were in the bad place, uh, the wicked or the rebellious uh, in, in, in the Old Testament times, and they were put in that holding tank, but the, they, the two couldn't pass to each other. We covered this in Luke 16. You can check that out for more information. Now, what happens is when Jesus was raised from the dead, remember, even though you were righteous in the Old Testament by Old Testament standards, uh, you couldn't be in God's presence for eternity until Jesus died for your sins. He died for their sins as well, even though it was kind of retroactive in a sense. So when Jesus... Uh, was resurrected, he set them free in the good part of Abraham's bosom. You know, Abraham was there and they were all hanging out with Abraham, pretty good time. And he set them free and they were able to be resurrected or be into, their souls were able to go to heaven and be with God. Sounds a little confusing? Maybe listen to the message a few times. Check out our Luke 16 message. There really is an order to it. If you have any questions, please email me and I'll try to make some sense of it even greater if I can for you. That being said, Verse 24 says that he who hears my word, Jesus says, and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life right now. You believe in Jesus Christ today. You trust him as your Lord and Savior. You immediately are credited with having everlasting life. That is awesome. We are eternal beings. We're going to spend eternity in one place or the other. Right now, you can make that decision for Christ Trust him as your Lord and Savior, and you have. That's awesome. Just like that. Wow, I don't feel different. Yeah, but God did it. It's it's taken care of. Okay? Has possession of. Now, he also has passed, or she has passed from death unto life. Right? So what happened to judgment, damnation, condemnation, hell? Well, it was transferred to Christ. When he died on the cross, he took our nastiness, he took our sin nature, He took the sins we committed before this time, now, even in the future as believers, and he died for those sins. He took that. And there is judgment for sin, but Christ took that punishment to the cross and to the grave. Okay? So, we took his good nature. God sees us by the blood of Jesus, cleansed as white as snow. So, when we die as believers, we go to heaven. That's just the way it is. He made it real easy for everyone. Verse 25, he says that the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and live. Now, this word, dead, is nekros. There's two words, thanatos and nekros in the Greek. Nekros is dead as a doornail. You don't get any deader than nekros. Now, what does this mean? This is a spiritual application. Those who hear his voice... They can be dead, but they will live. See, we are in, when we are born into this world physically, we're dead spiritually. It's just the way it works. It's the effect of sin. Once we're born again, we hear the words of Christ. Romans 10, 17, the word regenerates us. Right now, somebody may be, many of you may be moved by the words of Christ because they are powerful. And that we become, we start from spiritual, really, degenerates and move from spiritual regenerates, right? So we're degenerated in our spirit, we become regenerated unto life. It's a quickening process that the Lord does with us. Okay, that's the spiritual application there. Verse 26, he says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. 
What we see here is the Father and Son both are sources of life, and the Son executes judgment. Now, just in keeping with what we talked about last Sunday, there are those that will come to you claiming to be Christians and say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, you put Bob's name in there, or Pastor Joe's name, or Russ's name, and you know, Russ doesn't have life in himself, or he can't execute judgment. I picked on James last Sunday, now I'm going to pick on Russ. You know, it's what happens when you sit in the front. But they're excellent people. They're great servants in the church, but their power only goes so far. Uh, so anyone who puts their name in and insert it where Jesus speaks about himself, it's basically you're saying blasphemy if you believe it. Kind of Shirley MacLaine screaming on the beach, I am God. Nice try, but um, I don't, wouldn't keep that line of freezing up too long. It's going to get in you a lot of trouble because you're going to face him one day. Okay. Jesus had power over life and death. So number one, we saw this in John 1, in our John study, that Jesus is the author of physical life. Nothing was made that was made unless it went through Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that. Number two, Jesus is the author of spiritual life as well as physical life. We saw that in John chapter 3. You must be born again, and Jesus tells us how that can happen. And the third point is Jesus is also has judgment in him and is going to execute that judgment at the great white throne judgment. Now, a lot of people have heard maybe these feel-good preachers, and they don't ever teach this portion because they're afraid to, because they might lose numbers, they might not get enough tithes, they might not fill up football stadiums, because this stuff is not popular to preach, but it's the truth. And that's what happens when you teach the Bible line by line. You cover everything, the hard things and the encouraging things. So the third point is the great white throne judgment. Jesus has the power over the second death to destroy the soul and punish it for eternity. God is the God of order. You see order in the scripture. 28, he says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Okay? So he speaks about the dead hearing uh, the Lord. Now he speaks about those who were in their graves. And this is more of a bodily resurrection. And we've covered this many times in Daniel 12 too. I have a lot of Jewish friends and they, it's kind of funny. They say, you Christians talk about sin. And I always take them to the Old Testament and say, you guys started it. You know? <laughs> so when you, got, you Christians are talking about resurrection, I go to Daniel, you guys started it. You know? But it really is cool because it piques their interest. It gets them thinking, really? That says that in the Old Testament? A lot of them haven't read the Old Testament. Yeah, Daniel 12 too. It's very clear about those who are in the dust of the earth will be resurrected. Some to everlasting condemnation, some to everlasting life. Resurrection is right there in the Old Testament. We just, you know, the New Testament just completes and is a commentary on the Old Testament helps explain it better. So that's pretty neat. So you got your first resurrection. And then you have your second resurrection. And the second resurrection and the second death is a place that none of us want to be. None of us have to. That's the beauty of, of God's salvation. He offers it freely to all. Verse 30. I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge. And my judgment is righteous. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Again, could we say these things? No. No. Because we are sinners. And I'll start with myself. And our judgment will be biased as sinful human beings. That's why we need appeals courts, don't we? Because even law enforcement, where we're supposed to be unbiased, there are things that get done that the judges have to look at and say, you know, maybe this wasn't done right. Maybe there was a leaning here that we have to fix. 
I'll tell you what, though, when you're judged at the great white throne judgment, there are no appeals. No appeals process. Because God is a righteous judge. It's done unbiased. It's done perfect. So forget about getting Alan Dershowitz or any of these guys. They're not going to help you out. Trust me. Okay? As good as they are here. Here's the bottom line. You don't want me judging you because I could have a bad day. (laughs) And I don't want you judging me. And I believe that if we've lived long enough, even as believers, we've been judged by churchy people. Even as a pastor, I have. I challenge somebody's idols. They'll come after me. Okay? It's unfair. That's why there is no room for human judgment. It only has to be the Lord. Okay? He, he, he doesn't seek his own. Now, a little note on this, these feel-good preachers, which I did mention. I'm just going to say this up front. These guys are cowards. I don't care how big their ministries are. I don't care how much money they have in the bank. I don't care how many stadiums they fill. They're cowards. Because their ministries can go for 10, 20, 30, 40 years or more, and they never cover the entire Bible because they don't want to. It is not in their best interest. Now, we have use and need for motivational speakers. And if you will not give the entire truth and whole counsel of God's character, the good and the convicting and the hard to hear, then what you're doing is you're telling a half-truth. And it's not nothing but the whole truth it's, it's a lie at that point, because you're mixing in some truth, but you're purposely omitting other truths. So I would say this, that you know, they don't deserve the, the term preacher or pastor. And you know, I've named names from past, and I've used their words literally, so I don't have to make stuff up. I could just use their transcripts from their talk shows. And they do it over and over and over again, because the spotlight is on them. And if they say something convicting, they may lose members when they go back to their churches. And they've got to keep the machine going so they can't lose people. Listen, I'm not here to build a megachurch. I'm here to do my job, which is to teach people about how to be saved and then how to grow in salvation once we become saved. Some places only teach a one-sided approach, and that keeps their congregations in immaturity. And as babies, Pastor Mike actually taught that at the men's devotion on Saturday morning. In the Old Testament, if you only gave a one-sided view and you only told the people the good thing, well, you were in king's courts. You were well taken care of. While Jeremiah was thrown in a cistern and left for dead because he told the people the truth and the leaders. They didn't like that. They left them there to die while the false teachers were in the king's courts. The false teachers today are on talk shows. They, they fly uh, you know, their own jet planes. They live in the lap of luxury because they will not tell the whole truth about the scripture. Okay, And it's, it's, it's not a good thing. I got to tell you, the air conditioning over here in this zone, if you want to be cool, sit up front. It's cooler than back there because sometimes I pour over my notes and I sweat. I'm thinking, why do we have to teach verse by verse at Calvary? You know what I'm saying? You got to tell the truth, though. You know, you you can't be here to be liked. So that's a little word on these feel-good preachers. And if you have any questions, I can show you transcripts. I print out everything. I do my homework. It's part of the investigator in me. Verse 31. (laughs) Jesus says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Alternate translation, my witness is not valid as a testimony. And we'll get into that. He says, there is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, meaning John the Baptist. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. 
So here we transition to witnessing of Christ's divinity. And the first witness we'd like to call to the stand, because that's how it's set up. The way the language in the Greek is, is worded, it's almost as if it's a courtroom-style testimony to find out the facts of the truth. So we call John the Baptist, will you take the witness stand? He's the first witness. And the truth is, before forensic science that we have now, which is really neat for law enforcement, back then they didn't have that. Um, God had to reveal the truth, and if there was an accusation, it had to be a few witnesses, at least two or three, because that was your evidence. So this is, you got to go back to that time period. John the Baptist was respected by the people and the religious leaders. Most importantly, his life was prophesied of, and he also prophesied of Jesus, so it went in both directions. But verse 34, Jesus puts it in perspective. He says, I don't need testimony of man, just to make sure you understand that. These are five witnesses, but John isn't going to determine my sonship or not. So let's make that clear. The second point is John had supernatural help. The Spirit was with him all his life, starting from when he was born. In addition, Jesus tells the religious leaders, you guys aren't saved. Can you imagine that? You wonder why they wanted to kill him? You know, we've spoken about John the Baptist, we've spoken about the Apostle Paul, but Jesus Christ is the ultimate straight shooter. He told the religious system, you guys aren't saved. He tells them later, you don't have the love of God. And number three, he says, you don't even know the scripture. Now, I'm sure he said it in a very loving way, but he needed to convict their hearts because what they were doing was wrong. And I have to ask this question. You know, actually, let me just throw this out at you. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful of the wo- are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And I looked up that word in Hebrew for wounds. It means a literal wound, like a sword. And if you've been discipled by anybody, I know I have. I have um, spiritual scars from my mentors that have wounded me because I was going in the wrong path. So it is better for us to receive the truth, no matter how much it hurts, than for those to just kind of flatter us. And the Bible says a lot of negative things about flattery. Going back to the feel-good preachers, as long as American Christians have a demand for this type of stuff, there will be a plentiful supply. You know why we won't win the drug war? Because there's too much demand for drugs. Don't blame the Colombians. Don't blame those who export cocaine and marijuana. We demand it as Americans, so it's always going to flow into this country. It's the same thing with these light preachers. Americans, I got to tell you, I'm going to read something to you from the Voice of the Martyrs of Christians, our brothers and sisters who are going through severe persecution. I guarantee you, if that stuff came here, you'd see half of professing Christians in America put their Bibles away, take the fishes off their car, they're done because they don't want the persecution. As long as we demand these feel-good preachers, these guys will make a fortune. And that's a shame. It says something about uh, Western Christianity. You know, what does that say about us as a society when we just want to hear people tell us what we want to hear? Jesus didn't. 35. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So the second witness, you know what, I'm actually going to go back for a second because this is important. John was, he says, he was the burning and shining lamp and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Burning, I looked it up, set on fire, consumed, is that our attitude? Are we excited about the fact that we're saved? Are we excited about the fact that we can talk to other people and give them the hope of the truth of the gospel? 
Let me read to you a few portions of um, a passage in the Voice of the Martyrs uh, this month. And I, I urge you to get this if you don't already subscribe to them. This is an organization of Christians that goes around the world and documents severe persecution of believers around the world that we really have no clue of because it's a media blackout. They don't, they don't talk about this stuff in the regular media. You won't see it. Here's a situation in Somalia, okay? Um, it says it's North Africa. It says, when Christians are discovered by al-Shabaab, and they are very ruthless um, militant Islamic sect over there. Sometimes these believers are beheaded on the spot, as occurred with a 17-year-old boy last year in Mogadishu. Al-Shabaab agents have also murdered Christians after following them to refugee camps in Ethiopia and Kenya. Now, there was a little war um, a year or two ago between Ethiopia and Somalia because of this nonsense, and Ethiopians are more willing and open to, to Christians. Another situation is a brother, our brother. His name is Dia. He said he really liked the story of Abraham when he was you know, told to sacrifice his son, Isaac, and the angel stopped him and gave them a ram instead. It says Dia's abiding love for God in the Bible soon cost him a significant sacrifice. You know where this is going. One morning in 2007, Dia's youngest son took the Bible outside. He sat down in front of the house and opened God's word just like his daddy. But as armed militants of the Islamist Courts Union, one of the tribal alliances, passed by that morning, they noticed a six-year-old holding the Bible with a big, bold cross engraved on the cover. Of course, they accosted him. The wife came out, and what happened was they shot the boy through the head, killed him, and the wife was shot in the stomach, and both died instantly. It says, Dia believes he lost his son because of his Christian faith, but the deaths of his wife and son have made him stronger. He also says he has forgiven those responsible for the killings as the word instructs him to do. A lot of times with Christians here, and listen, uh, let me just say this. I'm not talking down to anybody. I'm sure if you compare me to one of these pastors, and this, they probably blow me away. You know, I, I live pretty comfortably too. I like the air conditioning. I like the building like this. It's nice. I'd like to believe that if militants destroyed the building, I would come back and still preach. I believe I would. But you know, you never know until you're put to that test. Look at the Apostle Peter. Um, the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, I'm, I'm with us all. We're so used to comfort in the United States. And, you know, it's kind of a nice thing, but I just wonder how we would behave and react if that type of persecution came here. Another woman, a woman, her name was Fozia, received 30 lashes because her clothing was deemed too revealing. She had been arrested for wearing a hijab, which is a mild head covering, instead of a burqa where there's only slits. It says she was whipped 30 times. It says she inched her way home despite her debilitating injuries. Each lash of the whip had ripped into her flesh, causing her wounds to bleed. A female neighbor came to my house to wash my wounds, Fozia said. I was bleeding. My flesh was peeling, and it was extremely painful. Fozia remained in bed for two days. She also was forced to marry a man about three times her age, and when he, she became a Christian, he beat her up and kicked her so hard in the stomach that she had a miscarriage. But you know what? This is what goes on every day to Christians in other countries. And every once in a while, it's hard to hear, but it's a wake-up call to us. Are we a burning and shining lamp? John the Baptist gave up his life for the cause of Christ. He had a miserable existence in a rotting, stinking prison for doing nothing wrong. Fozia and Dia are our brothers and sisters we'll see in eternity. 
Are we excited about the fact that we have freedom of religion and we can give the message of hope to other people? I hope so. I hope that puts things in perspective. Are we on fire today for the Lord? Or are we just thinking about going to the beach after service or hitting the links a little bit or putting a boat in the water or going fishing? You know, these are the questions that we have to ask ourselves. We're here to grow and mature and get closer to God, not to feel good on a Sunday morning. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. That shouldn't be our, our, our primary goal. 36, he says, I have a stronger, a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So we call the second witness to the stand the personification of these miracles that Jesus did. Most importantly, his finished work on the cross for our salvation. Now, if I didn't make myself clear, anybody here who doesn't know the Lord can come to him today. You're not barred by your race, your class, your economic status, all the horrible things you did before you came to church today. You're not barred by any of those things. Jesus paid for those sins at the cross. And that's the good news of salvation. That's why it's called the good news, especially after the stuff we read a few minutes ago. 37. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent him you do not believe. Third witness we call to the stand to Jesus' divinity is the witness of the Father himself. You have neither heard his voice. Why? Because of a hard heart. But some, other than the religious leaders, actually did hear his voice because they were open to it. And I'm going to get to that in John chapter 12. The Lord speaks from heaven. God speaks from heaven, the Father. And some thought it thundered. And others clearly heard his voice because of the, the difference was the condition of their heart. Some were fertile ground and some just couldn't care less. Completely necros, completely dead. Verse 38. He says, you do not have God's word abiding in you. Now, that's an oxymoron because these religious leaders memorize scripture. I guarantee they would put any of us here to shame. You give them any verse, any chapter, any book, they could rattle it off. You know, I'm, I try to memorize scripture. I, I have some of my favorite verses memorized, but, you know, I, I do the best I can. What does that say to us today? It says to us, even as Christians, it's good to memorize scripture. But if we memorize scripture and we don't know what it means and we don't apply it to our lives, quite frankly, it's worthless. We're no better than those people that Jesus rebuked back then who memorized scripture. So my question is, does the word abide in us? Do we own some of this? Let's just not make the application for the religious leaders. Let's make the application for us today. 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are which, they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. So the fourth fourth witness to testify is scripture itself. He said, you look at the scriptures, you read the scriptures, you search them because in them you think that you have life. 
You want to go to heaven like everybody else does. You want to pass judgment like everyone else does, but you guys are looking at at it the wrong way. The scriptures, Jesus says, will testify of me. Someone said, and I don't remember who it was, that uh, we should be able to lead a Jewish person to their Messiah, to Jesus, through the Old Testament. I took that as a challenge. How how much do we know the Old Testament? Jesus said it's clear. There's uh, There's hundreds of scriptures that testify in the Old Testament to the Jewish Messiah that was coming. Right? What do we expect when we read God's word? When we come to church? When we read Christian books and, um, you know, like certain Christian authors? When we watch TV preachers? I've heard a lot, oh, I want to be ministered to. I want to be entertained. Do we want life or do we want the pretense? Now, see, it's presuppositional if we're presuppositional about why we come to church or why we read the Bible or why we come to God, we're on shaky ground. See, when you come to church, you know, people do this. They'll come to church. Well, what do you have? Well, how's the worship team? Well, how's this? It's like they're coming to a Toyota dealer and they're kicking the tires. Let me take it out for a spin. You know, what kind of gas mileage do you get? We're asking the wrong questions. What, what can I get out of church? What can, I get, what can I get out of God? There are many people who call themselves Christians in their lifestyle. They're just using God. They just want him for his heaven. They really don't want him. That's weird. The question needs to be reversed. What does God expect of me? You see, the church has become me-centered because society has become me-centered. We have it backwards. What, what am I supposed to learn from looking through these scriptures? What pleases God? You know, what is it that I've done that, that, that caused this separation between he and I? Those are the right questions to ask. Verse 40, he says, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. They wanted to do it their own way. And I ask you today, brothers and sisters, are you brothers and sisters? Are you coming to God your own way? Are you offended by what I'm reading? These are Jesus's words. We can't call ourselves Christians and discard the hard teachings of our Savior. It doesn't make any sense. You know, and I've done this illustration before uh, with, with any relationship. I don't understand. We don't want our personal relationships to fall apart. We don't want to be in divorce court. We don't want when our kids to grow up to be estranged from us because we didn't have a relationship. None of us want that. And some of us have been through that pain and are wondering how we can avoid that the next time. Well, why do we do it with God? See, if I go home today and I buy my wife flowers, she'll probably say, wow, they're beautiful and they smell really nice. But if every day I'm buying her flowers and the garbage is overflowing and my son needs to be disciplined and I'm just kind of ignoring it, I don't hear, I don't see, uh, and the house is in disrepair or she's asked me to do something for her and I just keep buying her flowers because it's easy. After a while, she's going to be mad at me and I'm going to say, well, I don't understand, I keep buying you flowers. Yeah, but you didn't do what I asked you to do. And some of us are estranged from God because there are things called sins of omission. Well, I never really beat my kids. Well, I never said anything mean to my husband. Yeah, but you didn't do anything to foster the relationship. It's called the sin of omission, right? And that's where many are with God. Sometimes we just want to give God flowers when he wants our heart. Here, God, here's the flowers, but I want your heart. And after a while of that, what kind of relationship do we have with him? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Verse 42, he says, I know you that you do not have the love of God. Well, they didn't have the love for God. And as a consequence, if, if you don't love God and have a relationship with him, then you really can't love other people. It becomes only platitudes. We speak the lingo. Love you, 
call you, thinking about you, praying for you. I mean, you've heard it. The religious system was cold and self-honoring. Are we any different today? Or are we still stuck in that me-centeredness with each other and with our God? Hard questions that we have to ask ourselves. What about society? I just read. <laughs> I knew it was coming. I read about a woman um, a few years ago who married her house. She actually found some hack to do the ceremony. Now I just read about a woman, Nadine Schweigert, who in North Dakota married herself. Have you ever heard this one? You knew it was coming. Listen, I think these things, my big question is, what happens when you have a fight with yourself and you want to be alone? <laughs> I know. Probably nobody else thinks of these things. Society tells us, love yourself. Jesus tells us, deny yourself. And I tell you, when you put those two competing philosophies together, a lot of people buy into the love yourself one. It feels better. It feels better. Nobody wants to deny themselves. Too many teachings on self-fulfillment and self-glorification. That's why many are very disobedient to the word. They don't want to hear the word. That's why there's a demand for those type of preachers. They want to be ministered to and uplifted all the time. They want to walk on air when they leave the church or the stadium. That's not what God calls us to do. He calls us to grow. And the growing process takes pain. It takes self-denial. It takes sacrifice. It takes commitment. We're seeing a lot of these... Um, I hesitate to say the name, but one famous case of some of, you know, there are some young mothers who are awesome. I mean, my mom was a single mom. Did it, I think she did a great job. Some would disagree with that. But, uh, you know, we're seeing this epidemic of some of these young mothers who are partiers. They get pregnant, they have children, and they're doing horrible things to their children, leaving them in cars, putting them in a trunk, drugging them. Some of them have died. And it's really sad. Because what happens is they're all of a sudden when you, and listen, the guys are at fault too because a lot of them just disappear. So both take equal blame. But once you have a child, all of a sudden you're thrust in a position where it isn't about you anymore. Where you can't get the sleep that you wanted. Where you have to clean dirty, stinky diapers. Where you might break your nails. Where you might do things that are very uncomfortable. And our society, our young generation is getting it up front and center, up close and personal. This is life. This is sacrifice. We don't want that in our society. We want to do everything we can to minimize that, you know? And so this is where we're at, we're at as a society. Verse 43. He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Jesus made a real good case for them. And, you know, he said that you guys aren't saved, and he wanted them to be saved. I don't think he was you know, I think he really loved them. I think in his heart of hearts. And you know what's really neat? A lot of these religious leaders quietly came to him. In Acts 6, 7, it said many of the priests in the religious system, even after Christ's resurrection, they came to faith in their Messiah. That was awesome. So a lot of, he loved them. He wanted them. They were obstinate. But the only way for the, to soften their hearts for them to come to him was for him to break them down of their self-centeredness and their pride. And a lot of them came and received their Messiah. And that was awesome. But he said, you, and I believe he's speaking to the nation later on, another will come in his own name and you will receive him. Now you look at the nation of Israel today. I think it's 40-something percent atheists. The whole nation was founded on a belief in the monotheistic God. Um, I've had, I have articles of uh, religious uh, 
you know, legislators and people in power in Israel that have said, when the Messiah comes, he doesn't even have to be Jewish. He just needs to bring us peace. Have they read the Revelation? It's all through that. He will be charismatic. He will be deceptive. He will have a, a smooth tongue, a smooth talker. Haven't we seen enough of that, people? Why do we keep gravitating to smooth talkers? We need to be gravitating to people who are going to tell us the truth. So the, the nation of Israel, it's very clear in the scripture, in the end times, will receive this Antichrist, and he will deceive them, and he will make a false peace. He will give them everything that they're asking for, but it won't be, it'll be deceptive. <coughs> 41 and 44, he says that these men, these religious leaders, receive honors, receive honor from each other. They were the celebrities of the day. He said that they had the best seats in the feasts, in social gatherings. Do we see anything different today? I really respect the missionary family that goes out to these really hard areas, and it's tough. We need to pray for our missionaries. It's hard. But we have an awful lot of celebrities today. I was really blessed a few weeks back uh, going to the East Coast Pastors Conference. Chuck Smith, who really started the Calvary Chapel movement, and to me, listen, there's a lot of great movements, a lot of great Baptist churches, Calvary churches, you know, um, I mean, they're out there. They're awesome, non-denominational, so it's not all about Calvary. But when I went to the conference, Chuck Smith, who's in his 80s now, started the movement. It was God's vision in the 60s to bring a lot of the hippies and the barefooted people when the churches said, we don't want you, you're ruining your, our carpets, he said, we'll rip up the carpets, let them come in. Great vision. A lot of the hippies became pastors over the years. Uh, so it was really neat. But he said, now the man's in his 80s, he's got cancer, and he spoke with such power. He had to sit down because he didn't have the strength physically to stand, but his voice had power. There was the Holy Spirit was with him. And he said to the a sea of faces, all these pastors, he could have been prideful because, because of him and his faithfulness that all these thousands of pastors were there. But he said, guys, it isn't about the money. It isn't about the numbers in your church. You know, you're, some of you are, are getting the wrong impression of what success looks like in a church. The Holy Spirit's got to be a part of it. People need to be getting saved. People need to be... So, I mean, tell you, we were all captivated by this man's speech because it was powerful. And he spoke as if he wasn't going to be there next year. And um, that really ministered to me because we get off track about what we think is successful as a church. The first thing is the Holy Spirit a part of it. You know, is the word being preached? Those are the questions we need to ask ourselves. Last few verses... 45, do not think I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The fifth witness called to the stand is Moses. Now this really infuriated them. I wasn't there, but I can only imagine, because even today... There's so many sects of Judaism as there were then and there is now, but almost all of them use the first five books of Moses. That is throughout the, the, the faith. I mean, that's got, some take other books, some reject other books, but they use those first five books of Moses. And he's saying, listen, the prophecies are there. You don't want to believe it. And I have to tell you, as believers, as Christians today, sometimes we look at the word too and we don't want to believe it. Are we any better, we, meaning me too, than people 2,000 years ago sometimes? I mean, there are applications for us today. Sometimes we'll read, we'll hear a sermon, and maybe we'll get offended. Maybe we'll get tweaked. Maybe we'll think the pastor must be talking about me. Who told him about my situation? 
it's just don't kill the messenger. It's the word, you know what I'm saying? Um, and Jesus was saying, listen, this is, it spoke about me. You guys don't want to see it, but it's right there in front of your face. At the end of the chapter, we read of a tragedy of the worst type, the sin for which there is no, re- no remedy. What sin is that? Murder, robbery, aggravated assault. No, none of those. They're all forgivable. The sin of willful disbelief and rejection. By who? The religious men. Frightening. And I will say this to you as well. If I say something that you feel that you're not sure about, please go back to the Bible and read it. And if I'm wrong, please point it out to me. Because I'm fallible too. I make mistakes. Do not live your faith by any religious leader. Okay? You can have a one-on-one relationship with God, and that's throughout the Scripture. We all work together as the body of Christ. There's nobody in this room that's more important than another person. Being immersed in the Christian culture and failing to apply scripture can put us in the same boat as these men. Do we want to be like these men? A pretense of a faith? Really nothing behind it, window dressing? Or do we want to be like John the Baptist? He was on fire. Like Fosia in Somalia. Like Dia in Somalia. And I pray that if any of those things happened to me, that I would have the strength to forgive. That's amazing. Are we excited to see others come into the kingdom? Or do we want to barely scrape by with our faith? Once we know the truth, how do we not live by the truth? And I don't say this as condemning, but because every once in a while, we may have to look in the mirror and reevaluate ourselves and say, is it just window dressing? Or the same way I am in church is the same way I am turned to the week. It's the same way I am to my spouse, my kids, the same way I am to my coworkers, my neighbors. Or do we live a double life? There was a, a recent story about a very famous pastor, big ministry, big money, and he choked his daughter. I mean, I'm not even, I'm not even excusing a push or a slap, but when you choke somebody... There's a mindset behind that. You want to cut off the air supply. And you can read it. You can Google it. Um, again, is he the same way as he is in the pulpit as he is at home with his children? Am I the same way in the pulpit as I am at home with my spouse? You could ask my spouse. She's here every Sunday. But the bottom line is don't live your life through a man or a woman. Live your life in a relationship with God. There's the good news. We covered a lot of heavy stuff this, after, this morning. But the good news is that nobody has to be judged. You can pass from death to life. That makes me giddy. That still makes me excited. I passed from death to life. That is awesome. I'm going to die, but I'm not really dying. I'm just kind of walking from one room to the other. That's awesome. And I won't even notice the time difference. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And in addition, you can walk. Jesus says this. This is even more exciting. I come that you have abundant life, you know, that you have life and that you have life more abundantly. Oh, what else, Lord? I mean, that I shower the, the, the graces upon you, that you can have the gifts of the Spirit, that you could work with me in saving souls. What else, Lord? I mean, is there any end to this? That's open to everyone here this morning. So I want to leave you with that before we go to prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we don't have to come to church with lemon pusses and angry and unfun church people. Lord, you've given us a sense of humor.